I was born in 1988, and the more I learn about that time period, the more I realize that I was born into the end of history. In 1989, Ronald Reagan was president, and the Berlin Wall fell. In 1991, there was the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was a sense in America that the Western world had won, that liberal democracy, that capitalism had beat out communism, and that we were more moving into like this time of, of like unprecedented peace and prosperity. The Vietnam War was well behind us from the 70s, and, and the new war that was on people's minds was the first Gulf War, which was just like this very easy, trivial victory against uh, a tyrant, Saddam Hussein, liberating Kuwait. And around this time, in 1992, uh, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama, he published a very influential book titled The End of History and the Last Man. And he writes in that book, quote, that humanity has reached not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. End quote. And uh, over the course of my life, um, from, from that optimism that I was born into, it was uh, the air that I breathed, it was in the ether all around me, uh, until today, uh, a lot has changed. With the Russia invasion of Ukraine in the news these days, I decided to revisit a book that I had read a bunch of years ago uh, titled, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, The Surreal Heart of the New Russia. And it's a book that describes what modern Russia is like from the perspective of uh, a Russian person who spent a lot of his life in England, who works in television, and he's in Russia working for a big broadcasting company, working on uh, television shows. And he's just documenting what he sees in terms of uh, the media culture, the political culture, the art culture. And so one of the things that just stands out uh, is so jarring and striking when reading this book is the experience of corruption in this modern Russia today. Uh, just something which, which thankfully we're not so familiar with um, in America. You know, people talk about corrupt institutions in America, corrupt politicians. Um, in, in Russia, this takes on a whole new meaning. You know, the author describes living in Russia and driving in Russia, and, and for him as a, as a foreigner, the importance of having his papers on him at all time. Uh, the danger of not being caught without your passport, like uh, this, the, the, the thought of potentially losing his passport um, can induce you know, such panic because the, 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 the possibility of getting, getting stopped by the police, asked to see your papers, um, and the risk of not having that is so extreme in Russia. He talks about just driving in Russia as just being an obstacle course of corruption. How you know police officers are sort of extracting the rent. You know they'll change signs from you know one way to no entrance on you, um, just looking to stop you and and take money or take bribes. I have some uh, excerpts here from the book. There are so many little initiations, so many ways the system wraps itself around you. My latest had been a driving test. I would never pass. My instructor had explained if I didn't pay a bribe. This month five hundred dollars, but about to jump to a thousand if I didn't hurry. I protested that I wanted to learn and pass the test for real. He explained the traffic police would fail me until I paid up, end quote. And he just describes an entire economy, an entire language around bribes. Eskimos have so many words for snow. Um, who knows if that's actually true or not. But the, the point being, if when snow is so pervasive, you have so much language for it. So in Russia, the language around bribes 
is so complex. There's so many words for bribes. There's so many ways to initiate a bribe. And, and you have to know all these things to be able to even operate in society. He describes this ridiculous scene where he has to do his, you know, driving test. And, and uh, he paid the bribe. And uh, he's, uh, his, his instructor is actually doing the driving for him in the car. And his job is just to smile and pretend that he's driving. And it's like this weird game that everyone knows he's playing. Like everyone knows he's paid a bribe. Everyone knows he's cheating on the test. But they're all just playing this insane, goofy game. And he has to lie and like make it look like he's actually driving when everyone knows he's not. Um, it's completely absurd. And that's that's the, the theme of the book, this, this surreal heart of the new Russia. When talking about uh, uh, the traffic, the experience of you know waiting in traffic, uh, he's in a taxi at this point. He's writing, quote, traffic becomes the expression of the stalemate at the center of everything. On the one hand, the free market means everyone can own a car. But on the other, all the cars are in jams because of the underlying social structure. The siren-wielding black bulletproof Mercedeses of the big, rich, and powerful are free to drive against the flow of traffic, speed through the acid sludge driven by modern-day barons who live by different rules. The sirens are the city's status symbol, awarded like knighthoods to the most loyal bureaucrats, businessmen, and film directors. As they pass us, the driver and I both grunt, united, I sense, for a moment against a common enemy. Uh, skipping a bit. But when we end our journey and I get out to go, he suddenly grabs my shoulder and pulls me around so we are face to face. His arm is strong and his grip hard. Don't worry, my brother, he tells me. We'll clean the streets of all the filth, all the darkies, the Muslims, and their dirty money. Holy Russia will rise again. End quote. And that's an example of sort of the inchoate and undirected sort of anger that pervades society. The sense uh, that, that many people have that something is wrong, um, but the, the lack of a clear target where to point it at. He talks about, you know, paying taxes. He tells the story of his friend who has a, you know, a television business. And uh, there's all this backroom dealing around taxes. And he asks his friend, you know, why don't you just pay your taxes? And, and uh, the friend laughs at him and says, if I pay the taxes, there'd be no money left over. Um, and all these taxes are not going to, to pay for roads. They don't go to fund anything. Uh, they just line the pockets of these, you know, uh, tax collectors and uh, oligarchs. Every year, there's this ritual, apparently, where um, millions and millions of young Russian men are uh, trying to evade the draft because uh, there's obligatory military service. And it's, it's known that it's a horrendous, horrendous military service. It's characterized by extreme hazing, hazing that results in unnecessary deaths, in just a total abusive uh, experience where these people are cut off from society, cut off from their families, almost no communication. And it's just, you know, no one wants to do that. No one, I mean, some people do it. Um, but, but for the most part, the young men in this society do everything they can to avoid it. Um, and he describes these, these crazy hoops people have to do to hide, to fake insanity, um, to, to pay the right people off, these expensive bribes, all to avoid the draft. Our author, Peter Pomerantsev, writes as follows, quote, This is the genius of the system. Even if you manage to avoid the draft, you your mother, and your family become part of the network of bribes and fears and simulations. You learn to become an actor playing out his different roles in his relationship with the state, knowing already that the state is the great colonizer you fear and want to avoid or cheat or buy off. Already you are semi-legal, a transgressor, and that's fine for the system. 
As long as you're a simulator, you will never do anything real. You will always look for your compromise with the state, which in turn makes you feel just the right amount of discomfort, whichever way you're hooked. And it's within this context that our author talks a lot about television and the role that television um, and mass media plays in society. Of course, uh, the television is state-run. It's run by the Kremlin. And at the center of this uh, state-run propaganda machine is, of course, the president, Vladimir Putin. He writes, quote, The first thing the president had done when he came to power in 2000 was to seize control of television. It was the television through which the Kremlin decided which politicians it would allow as its puppet opposition, what the country's history and fears and consciousness should be. And the new Kremlin won't make the same mistake the old Soviet Union did. It will never let TV become dull. The task is to synthesize Soviet control with Western entertainment, mixing show business with propaganda, ratings with authoritarianism. And at the center of the great show is the president himself, created from a no one, a gray fuzz via the power of television, so that he morphs as rapidly as a performance artist among his roles of soldier, lover, bare-chested hunter, businessman, spy, czar, superman. The news is the incense by which we bless Putin's actions, make him president, TV producers and political technologists like to say. End quote. And one of the just fascinating uh, things about the society is the fact that Vladimir Putin is very popular. And the author describes uh, Russia, modern Russia, as a country you know, living through tremendous historical whiplash um, from dictatorships to communism to uh, real um, incipient uh, sort of potential democracy uh, to a, a, a backsliding into autocracy that exists now. And it's within this context of, of, of a historical slippage and historical whiplash, uh, a real lack of leadership exists, a real lack of ideological clarity. Um, it's sort of like a, he describes it as being almost like a nation of orphans, in a way, historical orphans. And within this context, Vladimir Putin uh, emerges as like the, the nation's father figure that everyone looks up to. The book deals extensively with the propaganda machine that exists in Russia. At the center of the propaganda machine is Russia Today, which is like this worldwide uh, network of uh, Russian propaganda, which is, you know, very popular and, and has, um, you know, a lot of uh, a wide variety of, of, of journalism and, and shows on it. So writing about Russia Today, quote, Julian Assange, head of WikiLeaks, had a talk show on RT. American academics who fight the world order, 9-11 conspiracy theorists, anti-globalists, and the European far right are given generous space. Skipping a bit. The channel has been nominated for an Emmy for its reporting on the Occupy movement in the United States. But the channel is not uniformly anti-hegemonic when it suits. RT shows establishment stalwarts like Larry King, who hosts his own show on the network. So the Kremlin's message reaches a much wider audience than it would on its own. The president is spliced together with Assange and Larry King. This is a new type of Kremlin propaganda, less about arguing against the West with a counter model as in the Cold War, more about slipping inside its language to play and taunt it from inside. And then it goes on to describe uh, the intro to Larry King. And um, yeah, it finally ends with this whole description with uh, Larry King saying, you know, I would rather ask questions to people in positions of power instead of speaking on their behalf. That's why you can find my new show, Larry King Now, right here on Russia Today. Question more. And our author uh, writes, 
the little ad seems to be bundling the cliches of CNN and the BBC into a few seconds, pushing them to absurdity. There is a sense of giving two fingers to the Western media tradition. Anyone can speak your language. It's meaningless. End quote. He goes on to talk about the uh, experience of journalists who work uh, at Russia Today. Of course, our, our author, uh, Peter, also uh, works in, in TV. Um, and he grapples with, on his own with uh, the role he might be playing in uh, propping up the Kremlin. Uh, and and he, he says that, you know, people, some struggle with it, some even quit on air and make a big to-do uh, that they're no longer going to be party to this propaganda. Um, but, but for the most part, you know, people just say, um, sure, uh, Russia today, Russia's naughty, but, but um, the West is bad too, he says, you know, one often hears. There's this, uh, you know, whataboutism. Um, the sense that uh, every, everyone is corrupt, every, everyone is, 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 is propaganda. Uh, in a section of the book that is uh, very startling to read now, um, given that there's an ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, he, he talks in, in detail about the kind of lies that are spread uh, in, in Russian media. So, quote, the, Ru- the West, he'll say, is sponsoring anti-Russian fascists in Ukraine, and all of them are out to get Russia and take away its oil. And he goes on and on describing all these like crazy lies. And then... He goes on to say that, um, you know, a little while later, you do some fact-checking, you find out that all the eyewitnesses that you saw on this report uh, were totally actors. Everything was completely made up. There are no neo-Nazi, anti-Russian fascists in Ukraine. All these things. But even when you know the whole justification for the president's war is fabricated, even when you fathom that the real reason is to create a story to keep the president all-powerful and help us all forget about the melting money, The lies are told so often that after a while you find yourself nodding because it's hard to get your head around the idea that they are lying quite so much and quite so brazenly. And at some level, you feel that if Austin Kino can lie so much and get away with it, doesn't that mean they have real power? The power to define what is true and what isn't? Wouldn't you do better just to nod anyway? End quote. And that to me is such like uh, the startling revelation um, and theme at the heart of the book that this author is, is, is drawing out, which is that there's this, there's this point you can lie so much, you can fabricate so much that you can uh, construct your own reality. And, and there's a sense, a widespread sense in society where you just have to nod along because uh, reality is ultimately like this um, collective hallucinatory narrative that, that we can just uh, tell ourselves. Um, it's malleable in that way. And um, it's, it becomes hard to resist that. Uh, this, this idea was um, articulated by Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Quote, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached a point where they would at the same time believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived, because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow, end quote. Um, an example of this, uh, there's, there's countless examples that you can see um, now with the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine going on, but one that just sort of stuck out to me. Um, so I think of uh, Sergei Kuryakin, who's a, a young guy who was a 2016 World Chess Championship challenger to Magnus Carlsen, which means that in 2016, he was considered to be the second best chess player in the world. And at the time, he was giving interviews, he speaks English, he comes off as very humble, he comes off as a little shy and awkward, he's obviously very brilliant, he's active on social media, which means he's totally plugged into the internet and to the, the, di- the, the dialogue and this discussion going on 
on the internet at all times. Um, and he still continues to be active on social media. And he tweets um, regarding the war in Ukraine. So, quote, this is from his tweets. Uh, Sergei Kuryakin, fairly recently. Many people ask if I regret my public support of the special operation, namely, namely Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. He says, after all, I've already lost invitations to Western tournaments and may lose an invitation to the candidates tournament. My answer is simple. I am on the side of Russia and my president. No matter what happens, I will support my country in any situation. And this to me is the key line without thinking for a second. End quote. You know, someone so brilliant, so smart, so plugged into the modern world with connections all over the world, someone who's traveled the world, um, can, can turn off their brain, right? He said, without thinking for a second, I, I support my country, um, which, is, which is so uh, depressing in a way. But it's true. It's true to human nature. It's true to human experience. It's true to the power of this kind of post-truth society. The, the main idea in the book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, is that Russia is in this like very strange situation, very strange place where it's profoundly authoritarian, but it has all the external trappings of a modern liberal democracy. And it's something that we haven't really seen before on the world stage. It's a kind of a paradox. So Peter Pomerantsev, our author, writes, quote, democracy, check. Russia is a presidential democracy with elections every four years. Civil society development, check. Russia has many new NGOs. Private property, check. Now, Russia does have elections, but the opposition, with its almost comical leaders, is designed and funded in such a way as to actually strengthen the Kremlin. When the beetroot-faced communists and the spitting nationalists row on TV political debating shows, the viewer is left with the feeling that compared to this lot, the president is the only sane candidate. And Russia does have non-governmental organizations, representing everyone from bikers to beekeepers, but they are often created by the Kremlin, which uses them to create a civil society that is ever loyal to it. And though Russia does officially have a free market, with mega corporations floating the record-breaking IPOs on the global stock exchanges, most of the owners are friends of the president, or else they are oligarchs, who officially pledge that everything that belongs to them is also the president's when he needs it. And this is the key line. This isn't a country in transition but some sort of postmodern dictatorship that uses the language and institutions of democratic capitalism for authoritarian ends, end quote. And it's fascinating to read about the experience of living in the society, the psychological experience, like the, what it does to a person, what it does to your soul. Uh, and another place, our, our author talks about how the language of human rights and democracy uh, has been totally appropriated by the Kremlin, by propaganda, that they mean nothing anymore. No one can use those terms when talking about uh, Russian society. And he says, the rage that exists is more inchoate. Hatred of cops, the army, blame it all on foreigners. He continues, some teens, the anarchists and artists, have started to gather and protest, rushing out of the metro and cutting off the roads and the main squares. They call their gatherings monstrations and carry absurdist banners. The sun is your enemy. We will make English Japanese. Efiat for president. The only response to the absurdity of the Kremlin is to be absurd back. He gives more examples of what these people do. Uh, running through the streets, kissing policewomen, setting cockroaches loose in a courtroom, graffitiing a penis on the underside of a bridge in St. Petersburg, etc. In any other culture, this might seem flippant. In this society of spectacle and cruelty, it feels like oxygen. Last example of this, um, of this theme in the book is describing the propaganda, describing the president talking to workers and, you know, 
spouting conspiracy theories. And he says, again, as, as we've seen before, you find out quickly that uh, the workers didn't exist. They were just actors. The conspiracy theories are all nonsense. The whole thing is a piece of play acting organized by local political technologists. The TV spinning off to some place where there is no reference point back to reality, where puppets talk to holograms when both are convinced they are real, where nothing is true and everything is possible, and the result of all this delirium is a cu curious sense of weightlessness. End quote. There are a lot of ways to, tra to track democratic backsliding in America. You can track the role of un unaccountable dark money in American politics over time and the Supreme Court case Citizens United, the impact that had on that. And um, you could read the book uh, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, um, for example, on that topic. You can, you can talk about the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby versus Holder and what that did in terms of allowing all sorts of voter suppression tactics and the purging of voter rolls. Uh, you could talk about the fact that in recent memory, we had two presidents, George W. Bush and Donald Trump, who both lost the popular vote um, while winning uh, the presidency. And, and the way this violates our, our sense of fairness and our sense of, you know, one person, one vote, that is the, the basic hallmark premise, uh, un, you know, fundamental um, notion of democracy. Uh, you could talk about um, the rise of gerrymandering, and uh, the book about that is called Rat Fucked, which is just uh, the way that Republican operatives um, during the Obama years uh, totally rewrote the map and uh, allowed um, huge incumbency advantages um, for politicians uh, and, and, and profoundly distorted democracy. Um, you, can, you can talk about uh, the obstructionist tactics that we've seen recently, increasingly um, by Republicans, uh, like when Mitch McConnell said that his, his main job, he saw his primary job um, in the Senate was to make um, Obama a one-term president. And the way that played out in the shutting down of government, you could talk about um, Merrick Garland, uh, the Supreme Court nominee of Obama, that whose seat was stolen by Republicans, and the, the way in which that was not just a huge distortion of the democratic process, but a major abrogation of norms in American democracy. And uh, these norms are ultimately what we rely on for our government and democracy to function. And, and this list goes on and on. Um, but I think the most, the most clear, the most stark example um, is just, it's just the big lie, which is this lie uh, that Donald Trump has been uh, promulgating and has been uh, in the mouth of uh, so many Trump supporters, including uh, the wife of the Supreme, our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, um, and you see, you see senators and congressmen uh, and congresswomen um, echoing this as well, which is that Trump didn't really lose the election, um, and and it wasn't a surprise because Trump, when asked before the election if he would commit to a peaceful transition of power, if he would concede the election if he lost, he he refused to answer that question. Um, he never committed to a peaceful transition of power, and and we know that. He told, he gave a speech on the day of January 6th telling his supporters to fight like hell um, at the Capitol. And uh, there's, there's, just, there's just no um, question uh, that, that democracy has never been more fragile in America. And, if, and, if, and if, in case you would think for a second that this was a, uh, a temporary phase in America, as if, as if temporary phases like this would ever exist in history, as if that's like the way these things work. But, but if you wanted to believe that, well, you, you have to reckon with the fact that Trump uh, after four years of pres his presidency, what he put out there, he got 10 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. And so it's clear that we're uh, moving in a very illiberal, anti-democratic 
um, direction in this country. And it's, it's, it's very depressing and, and heartbreaking and, and uh, troubling. And, and there's countless examples of this, but just obvious lies where the lying is the point. The, the war on truth is the point. Um, getting to the sense of, of weightlessness, of where we're no longer constrained by reality. And, and of course, there's so much conspiracy theories um, uh, from Trump himself, uh, the birther movement, uh, global warming is a you know, Chinese hoax. It goes on and on. Um, but the conspiracy theories are the point. Um, and when we think even about like science denial, denial of climate change or denial, uh, uh, belief that, that vaccines are dangerous or um, anti, the anti-vax movement, which is so popular, it's, it expresses this, this, this movement, this process, this historical, social, cultural process in the direction of liberating ourselves from truth, from reality, of moving into this world of nothing is true and everything is possible. Hi guys, I just want to take another shot at finishing this video. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that a book like Nothing is True and Everything is Possible gives us a lens, gives us a language for thinking about so much of what we're seeing on the American political landscape today. So, uh, for example, when the first press conference uh, that Trump gives after he's inaugurated as president, Sean Spicer comes out and he lies to the press saying that uh, Trump's inauguration crowd was like bigger than Obama's or like one of the biggest inaugurations of all time. Um, or, or thinking just about the big lie, which is uh, the lie which is just growing and metastasizing um, in, in American politics today, which is this lie that uh, Trump didn't really lose the election. And it's a lie that we're seeing other politicians adopt and if we learn anything from history, it's that these things are never just blips. You know, trends, trends like this, they build momentum, they build steam, and they metastasize, and they grow over time. There's no reason to think that it's just going to stop or go away. That's just not the way these things work. When, uh, you know, growing up, there was, again, this optimism, this sort of messianic sense that we were at the end of history. But, of course, that's not the way history works. Uh, history is a pendulum. Um, and, and public uh, perceptions around democracy and... Um, winners and losers in democracy, uh, that, that, that comes for a time. And then, uh, you know, history is cyclical and uh, people change their minds about, about what they want to see. And I think we're in the middle of that process now. 